Like many of you, Friday morning, you find out that something that's been in place and maybe many of you have been praying for for 50 years or so is, has changed. It's changed the landscape of our country. You know, and I thought it was interesting, the decision came down at 1010. Those of you who know me well enough know that in John 10.10, Jesus says, the thief only comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Now, that meant nothing to anybody else, but it did to me. But I want to make sure this morning, it's one of those things we don't just kind of skip over, and I appreciate Josiah including and praying, but I want to read something here just to make sure that you know, we've, and I for sure, if you've known me long and you've been at this church, whether a month or 10 years, this is not a place and this pulpit is not a place I try to do anything politically. Just hasn't happened. I've always been of the mind, the closer the church gets tied to a political party or even government, the church loses. We lose our influence. But that doesn't mean we're not human. Doesn't mean that we're not people that are seeking truth. Doesn't mean that we're not people wanting to do the right thing. So I wanted to make sure just before I get into the message this morning, is just to read a little bit about you knowing that we are a part of it. Many of you know that we're part of the Church of the Nazarene. And if you've looked us up and you've searched that, you probably already know where we stand, but I wanna make sure that you know clearly where we stand on something like this. And I'll read this and I'll comment. Life is a gift from God. All human life, including life developing in the womb, is created by God in his image and is therefore to be nurtured, supported, and protected. We value all human life and believe that when King David wrote, for you created me in my inmost being, You created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. That statement along with other scripture teaches that life begins at conception. We believe that human life must be respected and protected from the moment of conception. Therefore, we oppose laws that allow abortion on demand. The exceptions are there is life endangering conditions for the mother, but responsible, and here's where I wanna say this to us as a church. And those probably already know where we are on that. But I want to say this to us as a church, and this is what hit me on Sunday, I mean on Friday. And this is another statement from the Church of the Nazarene. Responsible opposition to abortion requires our commitment to be to the initiative and support of programs designed to provide care for mothers and their children. What I want to say to you, church, is you don't get to set this one out anymore. Almost Roe v. Wade allowed the church, allowed it to sit out. And I don't mean standing out there carrying a placard. I'm talking about genuinely compassion and understanding. This is complicated. And I know you may say, well, the actual action may not be complicated, but people's lives are complicated. People are hurting when they wrestle with this. I don't know... How many, but I'd say it's few that just do it out of convenience. Maybe there's more. 
But there's huge, deep, emotional strugglings that go on. Some of you may be in this room now that have went through that or been asked to to do that and you declined. I'll also say this. Responsible opposition to abortion does not include violence of any form. Violence begets violence. So I just wanted to make sure that you understand that we do not think this is simple in that sense. But we do take a stand. But it's not trying to support a political party or political agenda. It is to try the best we understand to support and advance the kingdom. My encouragement to all of us to continue to educate ourselves, to continue to understand better people's lives, understand, of course, science has obviously increased over the last 50 years to help us understand a lot of things about where the baby is (laughs) at what stage. But I just wanted to make sure you understood that from us as a church, we understand it's complicated, but we also stand for life And we need to be a help in answering this. One of my favorite illustrations of the Church of the Nazarene when it first started after 1908 in Pilot Point was one illustration of a lady who just started a home of young women who would get kicked out of their families because they were pregnant. And she would take them in. That's how we started. Compassion. And I just think, Lord, let us be that church. Let us be that church. And don't let us sit on the side and cast stones. Let us be a part of the solution in loving others for your advancement in this world. Lord, help us right now. We don't transition, really, because what we will talk about today involves anything we've talked about today. And Lord, help us to be the kind of people that are the fragrance and aroma of your life in this world. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, Romans 7 and 8, uh, if you read Romans 7 and 8, or you've ever read Romans 7 and 8, (laughs) you may walk away sometimes from Romans 7 specifically and go and Man, okay. Okay, let me, let, me, let me get this right again. I need to read that again. What's funny is when we read Romans 7, with, along with the Apostle Paul, we go, I get it. I understand that wrestling. Romans 7, 22 through 25 says, For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. In other words, I want to do the right thing. I understand what God's saying. I see it. I want to do that. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't know how often you do that. 
hope it's not when we only do communion here. I hope and pray that it is on your mind on a regular basis of what he rescued you from. Sometimes it's hard to comprehend all of it. I get it. What all he saved you from, because some of it we don't even know. Because if we continue down that path, we really don't know all of it. But we didn't. But what I love about the Apostle Paul, what I love about Scripture if I was writing scripture and I was wanting getting people, if I wanted people to join my club, my gang, my crew, my posse, whatever it is, I would not put all the flaws in there. But Paul is saying here, I don't understand my own actions. Has anybody ever been there? How did I just do that? Why did I just say that? I am a bafflement to myself. But it stems from a conflict. And of course, Paul talks about it later in Ephesians 6, talking about we do not fight against flesh and blood. But we fight against principalities and powers. There's something more at work here. So as you're even praying about what we just mentioned earlier, Roe v. Wade and what all that's going to mean, we're not praying against a person. We're praying in the heavenly realms. I don't see someone else as my enemy. They may see me that way. I understand it. But if Christ is doing his work in me, There's no room for that. So the law is sin and death. And here the conclusion of Romans 7 shows the need for the gospel, the good news, to deliver us from the consequences of sin under the law. So Romans 8, 1. Eight through eight, Romans 8, 1 through 8, excuse me. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. If you just memorize that, from what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be, sin off, be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have the mind set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. The mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's laws, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh, Paul says, cannot cannot please God by declaring there is no longer any judgment for those who are in Christ we've been released from the law of sin and death
There's no more condemnation. I have a feeling the enemy at times has a tendency to bring things back up to you, some of you. And you feel this condemnation. You sense, if you're not careful, if you don't filter it quickly through the Spirit, you feel this heaviness. You feel this, wow, if I'd have just, there's tons of regret. As I was... In 1984, January 1984, well before I met Jan and well before I knew Christ, I'm sitting in an abortion clinic in Dallas, Texas, drove through an ice storm to get there to pay for an abortion. The child wasn't mine. It was an inconvenience. That was the only reason I was there. It was an inconvenience. Because we have a mind like I did then, and I can't say everybody's doing that, but a mind like mine, it was controlled by the flesh. <laughs> you didn't think about any sanctity of life. You didn't think it was an inconvenience. I can clearly, clearly see that day today. Sitting there while the person I knew was having the abortion, another lady walks in. Sets there probably 10, 15 feet away from me. Very, I don't know the right, the right word is. It looks like a, in, a, in a business, like somebody that had a job way better than mine, even though I had a good job at Texas Instruments. Just somebody that looked pretty classy, and I don't know if that's the right word. I don't even know what the right word is, so forgive me if that offends you. But it looked like they had it all together. She sets down. For 15 minutes, at least, she was just bawling. It was simple. I don't know all her reasons. I don't know all her story. I don't know why she was there. I don't know if she went through with it. I don't know any of that. But that's been burning my mind. That's not simple. It was complicated. It wasn't for me. Not at all. Honestly, it didn't even bother me until I came to know Christ. Then I started looking back. But I was so thankful. As much as I hated it, there is no condemnation. And even as we walk this out, and as we go along, and I've been in this 30, been in this gang, uh, Jesus gang, uh, posse, crew, whatever word you want to use, <laughs> for a long time now. Sure hadn't been perfect. I've still got flaws. Some I don't even know about. Others do. But I'm so glad it, Romans 8 concludes this way. 
For I am convinced neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But I want to make sure today that when we look at this passage of Scripture in Romans 7 and 8 in man life, could we just camp out on this for weeks? Yes, we could. But I've got one week to cover these two. Because when you go back to even Romans 5.20, it said the law was brought in so that the, that, that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. What I love about this, Paul, what he's writing in 7, then we talk about here in 8, he said, we would not even know the difference between good and evil without the law telling us what to do and what not to do. But he wants to make sure, sure that Christ dying on the cross for us, God's love for us, fulfills the law. The law tells us the kind of life we should be living if we're living in the love of Christ. You go, wait a second, I don't know, I don't know about that. Because all of us, I think, recognize the need to, for our society, most governments, whatever, to have laws that we all kind of respect and we all kind of get along with. And we all kind of, I was telling Jan that they were driving along, or maybe it's, I don't know, maybe it's Bryce, we're driving back from vacation the other day. But it's amazing how everybody, you don't know whether they're Republican or Democrat or independent or far right, far left, anything. You don't know what kind of lifestyle, but man, you just hope they know how to control the vehicle. And you just know when you come to a traffic light, somebody just doesn't decide whatever uh, political party, we just want all red lights, we want all red lights, all green lights to mean red and red to mean green. Aren't we glad that there is some semblance that we all agree on and we have this nice little dance. If you drive to work in traffic, you know that little dance that happens that you turn your signal light on and the person maybe lets you get in and they just don't go, well, no, I don't like that. I'm gonna, I know who you are. I'm gonna I see the sticker on the back of your car. I'm gonna push you off the road. They don't do that. But we're glad that there's laws that we all reasonably agree with that go, hey, this makes society move forward. It's awesome. But isn't it funny, if you've ever done this, if you're on the freeway, this is not a confession, I'm just saying if it ever happened, and the speed limit's 65 and you're going 80, if it might ever happen. And everybody's going along, right? Everybody's going at the same speed. Everybody's just clicking along, clickety, clickety, click. Everybody's there comfortable. Everybody's, and you're saying, well, the law must have forgot to patrol this part of town. So because the laws decided not to patrol this part of town, I don't need to worry about the law. But what happens if a DPS officer jumps in that lane right behind you? Are you still going 80? The law reminds you of your transgression. <laughs> and the law, it not only, not only is it everybody else's issue, it becomes personal real quick. Because you're not just worried, I hope he doesn't get anybody. No, you're worried, I hope he doesn't get me. Have you ever driven along at an extra speed that you should have been, you know you're past that, but somebody else passes in, you go, man, I'm glad they're in front of me because they'll be clearing everything out. 
Again, not confession. But when the law steps in, it reminds us. And it becomes very personal. Not just community, but it becomes personal. This needs to become personal. Oh, isn't it easy to compare our best with someone else's worst? Isn't it easy to say, I'm not where I used to be, so that means I'm way above you. No, I'm not where I used to be, but I'm not where I need to be. And referring to the law, what what does Jesus say about the law? He says, do not think, in Matthew 5, 7 7 through 20, do not think that I've come to abolish the law. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of God. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of God. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying in really strong language here, do not think. Do not get in the habit of thinking this. It's a legal term. Don't get in the habit of that. Because sometimes you get in the habit of thinking something over and over and it's a lie. And all of a sudden it begins to be the truth to you. So he's calling you, he's calling them out immediately. Do not get in the habit of thinking this way. Because one of two things begins to think, and I think this may be where the disciples were. Either one, I must continue to live under the law, which again, we can talk later on, they have to work through all that as a new church. What things are required, what things are not. Either one, I have to, human effort, keep the law, or the law was a mistake, and now Jesus came and just removed it. Jesus said, don't think I've come to treat the law as a mistake. I came to fulfill it. And he said, not even the smallest letter. And it's where we get the word uh, I, or the, the dot over the I, iota. It doesn't make iota of a difference. Has anybody ever used that? Not one iota. Jesus said, I, no, no, all iotas are included. Should we thank God we're no longer under the law, but under grace? Well, of course. But if we think the demands of living under grace are less, you've never read the Sermon on the Mount correctly. Jesus says there's going to be a higher call to righteousness than the Pharisees and the scribes. We're going above the law. Well, how do you do that? Because Paul talks about, and he addresses it in Romans 6, 
Should we sin more so grace can abound more? Of course not, he says. But I love what Dallas Willard says. Grace is God acting in our lives to accomplish what we cannot accomplish on our own. Grace is acting in our lives what we can accomplish what we couldn't do on our own. Grace deals with the generosity of God. But so many people over time, and they can get this, in, like Jesus said, don't think this, that we've cheapened grace. That somehow or another, grace has been seen as the liberty to live below the law. When it was designed for the capacity to soar above the law. Erb McManus said that he was asked many years ago, Mosaic, that he'd be asked often, are you guys a grace church or a law church? You know, one of those, are you legalistic? Or are you like, you know, okay, you do what you want to do. We... And I love this statement. He says, oh, we're a grace church. He says, the law says do not murder. Grace says don't even have hate in your heart for your brother. He says, the law says do not commit adultery, but grace says don't even have, don't even have lust in your heart for another woman. The law says give 10%, but grace says, that, man, you can give 20, 30, 40, 50%. Grace always soars above the law. And so we cannot cheapen grace to figure out, to say, okay, now that Jesus came, I can live down here below the law somewhere. Matter of fact, you now have the power to soar above it. Now, obviously... There are laws about sacrifices. You can go however many laws there were. There was about sacrifices that were all finished one and done with the complete sacrifice of Jesus. And then there's things that the Israelites had to deal with as far as land and food and rituals that don't pertain to us directly. And by the way, if you did try to keep all of them, it wouldn't get you eternal life. Even if you did. But some see the Ten Commandments as unreasonable. And I think it was McManus, again, I'm not sure where I heard this, maybe in him. For somebody talking about somewhere, Ten Commandments are somewhere between man's attempt and God's expectation. But he says nothing can be further from the truth. He said, the Ten Commandments are not heaven's standards. He said, Irving McManus, there I got in my note. The Ten Commandments are the lowest possible standard of humane living. The lowest possible. He said, it might help if we just rephrase them in everyday language. Hey, could you stop killing each other? Oh yeah, by the way, could you not steal each other's stuff? And it'd be really helpful if you wouldn't lie to each other or post things, or have newscast, or politicians. That's not in there, but I'm just throwing all this in there. <laughs> about each other either. You know, it'd just be better if you didn't lie about each other. Not even to each other. That's, they don't want that either. But I think it'd just be better if you just didn't lie at all, but especially about somebody. And oh, by the way, 
Could you try to not take other people's husbands or wives? Sort of like keep your own. They seem unreasonable, right? The Ten Commandments call us to the extraordinary spiritual life. They don't call us to that. They call us to stop dehumanizing one another. Hey, could you not lie about somebody? Could you not gossip? Jesus said, I can't fulfill that. So you wouldn't want to gossip. You wouldn't want somebody else's husband or wife. Of course, you have no other gods before me. You know, could you not use my name? Find another name that you, if you want to curse with. Just don't do mine. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? Jesus died to fulfill the law on our behalf. Even though our salvation isn't dependent on keeping the law, we are not exempt from it. We show our love for God by trying to obey them. Romans 8, 3 and 4. Out of the message. Uh, We've already read it. God went for the jugular when he sent his own son. He didn't deal with the problem as something remote and unimportant. In his son Jesus, he personally took on the human condition, entered this disordered mess of struggling humanity in order to set it right once and for all. The law code, weakened as it always was by fractured human nature, could never have done it. The law always ends up being used as a band-aid on sin instead of a deep healing of it. And now that the law code, now, and now what the law code asked for, but we couldn't deliver, it was accomplished as we. Instead of redoubling our own efforts, simply embrace what the Spirit is doing in us. Power to live according to the law of God. But I'm no longer under the law, but under grace. Hebrews states, Hebrews 10, 11, 12, 16, and 18. Under the old covenant, the priest stands before the altar day after day offering sacrifices that can never take away sins. But our high priest offered himself to God as one sacrifice for sins, good for all time. This is the new covenant I will make with my people. And on that day, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts, in their hearts so they will understand them. And I will write them on their minds so they will obey them. They're not, just ex- they're not just outside of us, not just something we're looking at. It is something that's written on our hearts. Then he adds, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. How do you do that? How does the Spirit become indwelling 
and filling our lives. It sounds too simplistic, but by faith. Sometimes I think we overcomplicate it. And how does it continue to grow in us? The same way it gets in. By faith. I, 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 you know, sometimes I hear people go, well, you know, I, I, that living below the law, grace, grace covers it, grace covers it. I don't know who wants to believe in a Christ or a Savior, a Messiah, who makes no difference in our life. It makes no difference in our culture. It makes no difference anywhere. Who wants a Christ that none of, changes nothing? Oh, I get to go to heaven. Okay, not saying it's a bad benefit. But changes nothing right now. Who wants that? You've heard us use it hundreds of times here of true freedom. The ability to know what you should do. The desire to want to do it and the faith and power to live it out. The ability to know what you should do. Have wisdom and discernment and insight and educate yourself. There's a lot of things I don't comment on because I haven't educated myself enough on. I think sometimes people just need to be really quiet. That's just my opinion. When you don't really know what you're talking about. And if emotionalism is the main thing that's driving you, look for truth. Just go looking. The desire to want to do it. Paul says it in 722, right? My inner being, in my inner being, I delight in, I want to do that. I'm a bafflement to myself, but I want to do that. But what if you had the faith and the power? Jesus not only delivers us from the guilt of sin, he gives us the power to live over sin. Let me ask you a question today. If you had the ability to never sin again, would you want it? And the answer is for most of you, no. Because it comes in handy. I'm trying to be funny. It just comes in handy. If I truly had the power over sin, if I never had to sin again, and if I could choose, I remember our, our friend, Brother Paul, years ago, people would go, yeah, you can't do that. He said, can you go? He, he, so he, he said, you can't live above the power of sin. So he asked the question to, to one of his friends from a different denomination. He's asking me, he said, uh, this is Paul Sr. He said, do you think you can go a minute without sinning? He said, well, of course I can. He said, do you think you can go five minutes without sinning? Well, well you sure I can. About an hour, maybe. He said, A week? Well, I don't know, it'd be a struggle. He said, But let's go back to the minute. How do you know you can go a minute without sinning? Brother Paul would say, It's because it's a choice. It ends up being a choice. And it depends on how you define sin. I realize there's different defi- definitions of how people define sin. But one of the things I love is this. And no doubt, as I said earlier, we're imperfect people trying to live this out. But I love this. I found this in a, in a book that I, that I did years ago in my course of study, and I love this. It's a guy named Myron Augsburger. It says this. 
It says the degree of indwelling is dependent on the degree of yieldedness to God. The spirit-filled life or spirit-possessed life is not one in which we have a certain amount of the spirit, rather one in which life in which the spirit life possesses all of us. The spirit-filled life is one in which the spirit expresses himself within an individual as controlling an overflow and an overflowing force. The condition is one of yieldedness on our part. We are filled with the spirit as we are emptied of self. It is one thing, therefore, to have the spirit. It's quite another for the Spirit to have us. Some of you are going to walk out today and go, man, you may find different issues with what I've said here today, but one of them is, you may say that church is a law church. They're a legalistic church. I believe we're a grace church. Because it's through God's grace we can live above the law. Not as something that we feel restricted by or imprisoned to. Or I love what 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15 says. For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves. But for him who died for them and was raised from the dead. No, I don't serve Christ because I have to. I serve Christ because I'm compelled to. I pray God would compel us. Because it's out of that, when it's out of just being obedient, it seems very structured and mechanical. And sometimes a burden. But when it is out of the love of Christ, for Christ... And it begins to infuse you as you yield. As you give up space, the Spirit takes space. You'll find yourself wanting to serve, looking to serve. Not out of duty, but out of desire. Well, we come before you today. knowing that this has been an emotional week for many across our country and across our land and even voices around the world. But Lord, we're called to be a, a shining light, a city on a hill. We do not hide that light, Lord, but Lord, let us be the kind of people that the fragrance and aroma of who you are would be so obvious to those around us. Lord, even this day, there's ways to respond. There's ways to understand. And Lord, I just pray that even right now, just even the meeting we're going to have just in a little bit about serving, about giving of ourselves, and just trying something. Lord, I pray that you'll help us with that as a church. Because, Lord, I believe the challenges ahead of us I hope they're big enough that if we don't include you, we're in trouble. And they're big enough that when we 
believe you're going to come through, it stretches our minds and our hearts to dream bigger than we've ever dreamed. Lord, help us today. We love you, Lord. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.